0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to have your Bibles handy so that we can turn to some various texts this morning. Told you we wouldn't be in Revelation today just due to things going on in my family's life and feeling like it would be a, a lost opportunity to kind of share with you um things that God is using to sustain me during this time, um, and I know uh, for Lauren as well. Um, I do have our slide notes in our Google Drive, so if you'd like to access those, uh, feel free to do so. I'm gonna get those up on the screen for us as well. I know there's I know we're certainly not the only ones that have experienced the the pain of a miscarriage. I know um, for me personally. Um, I always used to think that um, I would never experience my parents getting a divorce, and I would never experience um, a miscarriage. And so I've experienced both now. Um, So certainly can relate to those that have experienced something similar. Um, And just really felt like in preparing for today that it would be, uh, again, a missed opportunity to not share some of the things that God has reminded me of in the midst of our family's loss um, wanting to share that especially in in lieu of knowing that others have experienced this type of loss as well and knowing that hopefully this would be an encouragement uh, to those that have experienced this type of loss but then also anticipating that this certainly won't be the last time that someone in our church experiences loss either and so hoping that this too uh, would be proactive in in preparing others that may experience a similar similar loss um, in the future um, when, so I share with you that we had found out a couple of weeks ago that we were pregnant, and Lauren and I have always, when we first got married, we'd always talked about wanting to share our pregnancies as early as possible. Um, I know there's varying opinions about when to do that and wanting to make sure that everything's okay. We had decided early on that we wanted to to make that known early, because even if we were to, to walk through a miscarriage, we wanted as much support as possible in the midst of that storm, and so um, we never wanted to to wait too long, and so We had found out a couple of weeks ago about our fourth child being on the way, and um, like I said, we knew through the ultrasound that something may not be right um, based on how she was measuring, and so um, it's been a a long two weeks um, just really praying through that and and hoping for the best and and praying for God's provision, but also kind of in the back of your mind mentally getting prepared for for the worst-case scenario as well, and so um, we received that news this week, and um, I knew going to the doctor that, um, you know, it would probably be pretty pretty quick to, to know what was going on, and um, certainly not due to the, um, to the lady who does the ultrasound, and I won't tell you where we go, but the lady that does our ultrasound, I mean, she is a stone-cold-faced individual who um, every time I've gone, I thought something was wrong, and so I knew that I wasn't going to be able to read her to figure out if anything, you know, was good or bad, um, for this ultrasound, but it, it was very clear um just from previous experiences, knowing what it should like look should look like, and knowing what it was looking like, and you know, Lauren and I knew very quickly with the second ultrasound that that we had lost our child and um immediately um, immediately there was such a sense of relief in knowing that for the past six weeks, you know, I really felt confident in believing that my child had been with Jesus for the past six weeks, which was really neat to think about in all the things that we've been talking about in Revelation, these throne room scenes of um, God's people worshiping and giving glory to God, to think about my child going before me uh, to be a part of that. And I want to share with you um, today just my understanding of how the gospel works through what God has made clear in Scripture. Why, in that setting, and looking at that ultrasound, that could be my immediate thought, is that my child's with Jesus. And not having to question that, not having to wonder about that, not really having to go to Scripture and trying to figure out that answer, um, that God had revealed that to me. And I'm thankful because in my earlier years, as I was studying theology, um, had probably gotten caught up too much in theology and really had reached a point where I was like, man, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure if infants go to heaven if they die. Um, my understanding of original sin and and Adam's sin being imputed to to us uh, in conception, um, I'd really just reached a point early in life where I was like, "Man, I just don't know," because the evidence really could be swayed in such a way where you're just like, "Man, they're guilty and and they're not redeemed." And I'm thankful that prior to having to walk through this with my wife, that um, that through personal study I'd reached a different conclusion. Um, that through my study of the gospel and my understanding of how the gospel works, that um, that I had reached a really um, solidified point in my life and believing that that's not the case, that, that God does usher these into heaven for with him for eternity. I want to share with you why I believe that. I'm realizing that, that you may disagree with that, and that's okay. Um, but I want to share with you biblically why I believe that, and hopefully to help you see that it's not built on an emotional response in what we're going through right now. And so um, our summary sentence for today... In the midst of sorrow and loss, our theological responses must be driven by biblical truth rather than emotional feelings. In the midst of sorrow and loss, our theological responses must be driven by biblical truth rather than emotional feelings. And this this is true for any type of sorrow and loss, not just in in what my family is experiencing right now that how we respond theologically, how we think about God and what God is doing, it has to be driven by biblical truth rather than emotional feelings. It can't be, man, I hope God is this way, or I, I hope God is doing this, uh, to instead be able to say, man, this is what Scripture teaches. Like, this, this is the hope that's been presented to me in God's Word. And so for our kids, the Bible, rather than our feelings, should guide our responses to life's most difficult circumstances. The Bible, rather than our feelings, should guide our responses to life's most difficult circumstances. In the midst of sorrow and loss, our theological responses must be driven by biblical truth rather than emotional feelings. One author said, Mere sentimentalism ignores the Bible's teaching which bears on the issue. We have no right to establish doctrine on the basis of what we hope may be true. We must draw our answers from what the Bible reveals to be true. And so I want us to look at that today and offer up some hope um, at the end after discussing the gospel a little bit this morning. So in our notes, and like I said, we'll jump around um, in different places of Scripture today. So keep your Bibles handy if you'd like to to do that with us. Um, What do we know about the gospel? What do we know about the gospel? The definition that I use in its simplest form, the gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin through Jesus Christ, by faith, for his glory forever. It's a definition that we try to teach at Trinity to our students. It's a definition that I've used in discipleship relationships, both here at this church and at previous churches. It's God's plan to save man from his sin, through Jesus Christ, by faith, for his glory forever. And that starts with us having a correct understanding of God, that God is our holy and just Creator. He's our holy and our just creator. God is a holy God. He is separated from his creation. He's holy in the sense that he is separated from sin. Um, He's completely righteous. Uh, we see this evidenced in the idea of, of him creating Adam and Eve, and when they fall into sin, him having to separate them from his presence in the Garden of Eden. He is a holy God who is remaining separated from sin. He's a just God. He's a just creator. He's a God who has to punish sin. He's a God who has to respond to sin. In your notes, God specially created man in order for man to give him glory. As our creator, as our holy and just creator, God created with purpose, and he created us with a specific purpose, and that was to give him glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, a passage that we've already studied, this this scene in heaven it says worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We've been talking recently in Revelation about idolatry. We've been talking about Jesus coming and his wrath coming upon those who fail to repent of their idolatry, right? The idea that instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. And so we've been talking about, and hopefully you've been wrestling through in your own life, what are the idols in my life? What are the, the possible things that are taking an unhealthy uh, role or an unhealthy place in my life? Am I giving honor and worship to things that God has created, things that are supposed to be used? as tools of worship to him. God has created us to give him honor, to give him glory, to respond to his power. You've created all things by your will they existed and were created. God specially creates man for man to give him glory we've talked before about what that means is that god has creator rights over us that as our creator he has the right to dictate what this life looks like how we're to respond to him the rules that we're to play by he's the creator of the universe he has complete control of this universe and he creates us with specific purposes and he has the right to do so it's his prerogative to create us with these particular purposes not only has he specially created man to give him glory, number two, he intentionally revealed himself both in general and in special ways, making mankind accountable to him. So the gospel, his plan to save man from his sin, we have to first understand that we're accountable to God. That our sin, our choices that God labels as sin, they are sin because God has mandated that we live differently than the ways that we have chosen to live. The reason that it's sinful to give glory and honor to created things is because God has declared it to be that way. He is infinitely worthy of our worship and honor. We deviate from that in this universe that God creates, and it's sin. And we're accountable to God for our choices of sin. In Romans chapter 1, a passage that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks and talking about idolatry, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 or verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God has revealed himself. He's done that generally. We call that general revelation. It's God revealing himself to all persons at all times and in all places. But God has also revealed himself specially or specifically as we find in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews begins this letter. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we think in terms of general revelation and special revelation. General revelation, God has made himself known in all creation for all peoples for all times. Anybody that's born into this world with the mental capacity to understand this universe can see the glory of God. They can see the glory of God throughout all of creation. And they're going to see that differently the more you delve into creation. Those that um, have delved into different aspects of the academic world, especially into the scientific world, see all kinds of imprints of God's creative nature upon this planet. Right? We can see God's glory. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So we can see God's God's presence and his activity in the world in a very general way. And then specifically or very specially, God talks about speaking to his creation. And that is special in the sense that not everyone receives that. Right? There are special things that God's people, uh, the Jewish people, had that other nations did not have. It talks about in Romans how they had the oracles of God. They had the direct revelation of God given to them in written form special revelation Jesus came and taught people here on this planet that we we aren't the recipients of that we're only the recipients of it in that it's been passed down to us in written form but God has spoken to prophets he's written down his word he sent Jesus upon this earth there are people that have never heard the name of Jesus there are people who don't have the bible in their own language and so they don't have that special revelation but all people have general revelation, right? And God tells us here in this passage in Romans that while general revelation uh, does not save us, it does provide a knowledge of a powerful eternal God whose standard of living we do not meet. We'll come back to this, but in Romans chapter two, it talks about the law being written on our hearts. Whether we know about Jesus or not, whether we've ever heard about the Bible or not, there's a law written on every single human's heart to know the difference between right and wrong. That general revelation gives us a knowledge of a powerful eternal God whose standard of living we do not meet. While there's not enough revelation in creation to save a man, there is enough revelation to condemn him. Let me say that again. While there's not enough revelation in creation to save a man, there is enough revelation to condemn him general revelation removes all of man's excuses and shows that our attempts at worshiping and performing good works fall well short of his standard of holiness. Romans chapter 3 basically gives a long list of why every single human being falls under the judgment of God, why they are rightfully condemned before God. So we wrestle. It's tough when we think in terms of Man, somebody that doesn't know the name of Jesus, somebody that doesn't have the Bible in their own language, somebody who a missionary has never reached, falls under the condemnation of God, that's hard for us to reconcile. Doesn't mean that we should dismiss it because I think scripture is very clear in that teaching. How do we reconcile that in our mind is that we have to recognize that general revelation is enough to condemn us. It's not enough to save us. I don't think anybody can be saved through general revelation. I think it has to come through faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, man, we could pull some of the missionaries off the mission field and say, hey, they have a responsibility to respond to the general revelation that's out there to get saved. We don't have to leave our family and friends to go. Man, no, Paul, Paul, Paul beckons us in Romans chapter 10 unless they hear they can't be saved, right? Because there's enough in creation to condemn them, right? We don't have to wonder, do we need to go to this tribe? Do we need to go to this people group? Are, are they guilty of sin? And scripture is very clear. General revelation, all people, all times, all places, it's enough to condemn him, to condemn us because we can see the eternal power, the divine nature. We can see the law written upon our hearts and we reject it. We turn from it. We worship creation rather than the creator and we fall into the condemnation of God and we need to be saved. That's what we understand about God. He's a holy creator, he's a just creator. He's revealed himself to us, and we have rejected that revelation, whether we've only rejected it on a general sense or whether we're in the group that has rejected it from a general and a special sense. And let me just tell you, if, we're, if you're not a believer in this room this morning, you've rejected both, right? You've rejected the general revelation, and you have, have certainly sat under the teaching of Scripture to have received special revelation that has also been rejected, okay? We're guilty before God, whether it's through general revelation or both, We are accountable to him. So God specially creates us to give him glory. We don't live up to our purpose. Even though God has revealed himself, we reject him and we are accountable to him. What else do we know about the gospel? We understand who God is through God's word, but we also understand us, ourselves, and our sin. Mankind is guilty and condemned because he is unable to fix his problem of sin. And our kids' notes are right there underneath in bold and underlined Um, So if you didn't get the last one, God is our holy and just creator. And then mankind is guilty and condemned because he is unable to fix his problem of sin. Mankind is guilty and condemned because he's unable to fix his problem of sin. In your notes there, number one, mankind experiences death because all mankind is conceived in sin. Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who who was a type of the one, who was to come what's that what's that mean what's that describing there well think about it adam and eve had direct special revelation right here's what god's plan is for you don't eat of that tree they had special divine law given to them they broke it they experienced a spiritual death they eventually experienced a physical death right when we studied revelation we talked about adam living to be over 900 years old and then he dies right he dies he doesn't he doesn't live Forever, He dies, and that wasn't, that wasn't how he was created to be. He was created to be eternal, and yet his sin ushered in death to this world, right? And so after that, we don't get direct revelation about what is right and what is wrong in the form of like a written law until Moses shows up, until Mount Sinai, and until we get the, the Ten Commandments and God's law and regulations given to the Jewish people. No, we don't have direct laws really being given out to mankind. there's There's this law, this compass that's given to our hearts that we're to respond to, and what Paul is saying is that that right there, the law written on the heart, is enough to cause people to die for their sin. He says, look, death spread to all men because of Adam's sin, and we show that we are the recipients of Adam's nature because we die, because we die. Even without a law that we are to be obedient to that was given to us, we die because of that sin nature that's passed off to us. One man sins, death spreads to all men because all sinned. And the curse, the curse wraps all the way around the globe, right? We, we cut our grass and we treat the weeds in our grass because of the curse that hard work now is the result of man's sin, right? Work was always part of God's plan for man, but it's hard now. I experience the loss, our family experiences this loss right now because our child was conceived in sin. Adam's sin spreads, spreads to all of us. Not when we start to sin, but the moment that the that the that the egg is fertilized and, and, and human life begins, man, it's conceived in sin, scripture teaches us. Adam's sin spreads to all mankind. And as I was thinking this weekend, as I was, as I was working in my yard and intending and to the grass and, and trying to cut weeds and, and, and fix my yard up, I'm thinking in terms of, man, I'm having to do this because of Adam's sin. We're grieving as a family because of Adam's sin, right? Death entered into this world because of one man's sin, the Bible tells us. Mankind experiences this death because all mankind is conceived in sin. This isn't the only passage that reveals that to us, Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Psalm chapter 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter talks about mankind being sinful from the very beginning. We're estranged from the womb. Mankind experiences death because all mankind is conceived in sin. We don't become sinners when we sin. we sin because we are sinners. Number two, mankind is guilty of rejecting the revelation given to him. so we talked about this. Mankind has at least, at its bare bone minimum, general revelation that he has rejected. Romans chapter 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul says, Whether you have God's law or not, you fall under the condemnation of God because you have rejected the revelation that has been given to you. And mankind can't fix it. Mankind is incapable of being spared from God's judgment by being good. Romans 3.20 reminds us, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We have a problem on our hands, right? Like we're created for a purpose. We're created to give God glory. But because of our, our forefathers' sin, Adam and Eve, and we're born into a situation where we can never really fulfill that without Christ's help. Without Christ radically saving us and transforming us into a new creation, the creation that's formed between husband and wife through that, 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 uh, that marital relationship, bringing forth children, man, through that, it's, it, it's brought forth in sin and death. Our kids are subjected to death because Adam's sin is imprinted on them. It's passed to them. It's imputed to them. And without the work of Jesus, that can't be fixed. Can't be fixed. No matter what type of background they grow up under, whether they grow up in a spiritual background or a non-spiritual, they are condemned before God. All of us are condemned before God because of that sin nature that we're born with. We reject the knowledge given to us, And we're incapable of fixing it by being good. We can't atone for our mistakes on our own. We can't recreate ourselves. So we see a holy and just creator who is our God. And then we see us rejecting him as our creator and falling into sin. But the gospel also entails an understanding of Christ and salvation. In Romans chapter 3, despite all of the bad news, Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is Jesus rescuing us from a situation that we could never rescue ourselves from. Through his life, death, and resurrection, salvation is made available through repentance and faith. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all three are such necessary components to our understanding of the gospel. Through his life, death, and resurrection, salvation is made available through repentance and faith first of all the life of Jesus achieves the righteous perfection that we need we talk about this every time we take the lord's supper that that bread represents the perfect life of Christ that perfect righteousness that's needed for salvation in romans chapter 5 verse 17 for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man <coughs> much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And the good news, the bad news is that Adam sins and his sin counts towards our account. We are guilty before God because of our sin. We are, we are inherently sinful. The good news, though, is that Jesus, through one man's righteousness, his righteousness can be imputed to us. So we're treated as guilty because of Adam's sin, but we can be treated as perfect because of Christ's righteousness, according to Paul's teaching here in Romans. The life of Jesus it earns perfection that we desperately need to be saved. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus comes to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law for us, he achieves that through his life. And then in Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' life is necessary for our salvation, but so is his death. The death of Jesus erases our sinful past. The death of Jesus erases our sinful past. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. For those of us that are believers, our record of debt has been canceled. Our sinful past has been erased through the death of Jesus. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus compels us to repent of our sins and to put our faith and trust in him. The resurrection is the stamp of approval from God that the work of Christ has been accepted. Right, It's God verifying or validating the work of Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection compels us to examine our life and to get things right with God. The resurrection demands repentance and faith. In Romans chapter 10, talked about this earlier with the the, um, stipulations for salvation and how people have to hear the gospel. It says in verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scripture says, "Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This isn't the Jewish way to be saved. This is the everybody way to be saved, right? No distinction between Jew and Greek. calling upon the name of the Lord believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead is what saves us, putting our faith and trust in him, repenting of our sin, recognizing our sin, turning from that sin, turning to Jesus, recognizing that our good works, our best efforts fail in comparison to that righteous requirement. Instead, putting our faith and trust in Jesus who came to be perfect for us, who came to die in our place, recognizing that we even deserve that death, recognizing that sin that's inside of us that needs to be dealt with, allowing God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus instead of us, believing in our hearts that we too will be raised with Jesus once he returns. Putting our faith and trust in Christ ultimately leads to our salvation. And this is the gospel all right, this is the gospel that saves us. The idea that, that we have failed a holy God who created us to give him glory. Instead, we ran after other things and gave our heart and our attention and our affection to things that God created. That we committed sin. And we didn't become sinful when we started making sinful choices. We were always sinful as we were conceived in sin because Adam's sin was imputed to us. And while that's bad news and may feel unfair at times, what a great thing to know that one man's actions can also get us right with God, right? That Jesus comes and lives a perfect life for us so that that righteousness can be imputed to us and we can be saved. It's only through Jesus. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. So, so as I'm reflecting upon the gospel in the midst of, of tragedy in my own family's life, and it leaves me with a, with a question of, what comfort or hope is there for a parent who loses an infant? Like, like, How does my understanding of the gospel mesh with what my family is experiencing right now? How do I look at an ultrasound and realize that we have lost a child? How do I look at that and believe that that, that, that child is with Jesus now? There's, there's some answers that are oftentimes given, and there may be some of these that you've actually been clinging to, and I want to correct the theology. I want to correct the theology on this. Um, we don't want to be driven by our emotional feelings about a situation. We want to be driven by what God's word has to say. Should we assume that a dying infant is saved based on innocence? This is sometimes often presented uh, to, a, to someone who's grieving in the loss of an infant that, that their child is spared from, from God's condemnation because they are innocent. But my, 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 um, my dissatisfaction with that is that to assume that an infant is innocent is to deny the doctrine of original sin. All right, We've talked about this, that, that Adam's sin is imputed to all mankind. And to believe that a child is an innocent, therefore not guilty until they perform sinful acts, is to then also at least open the door that maybe they will not choose sinful acts. Right? Maybe there is the, the, the hope and the, the possibility of another perfect individual coming upon this earth, and we know that not to be the case, that Jesus alone is the one who can save through his perfection. So it really, it really doesn't mesh with Scripture. It, it may feel emotional, right? Like we talk about a child and we talk about the innocence of a child. We want to see them as a cute, cute, cuddly individual that, that can't be capable of evil. But what Scripture tells us is that, man, in the womb, they're estranged from God. In the womb, they are sinful. Man, keeping up with Maui over the past couple of days uh, to help Lauren through this process. And she is sinful. She is selfish. She gets angry very quickly I mean she's adorable and i love her to death but 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 she is imprinted with adam's sin nature upon her and that continues to flesh itself out as she gets older it doesn't work to say that a child is innocent if we mean that they are innocent without sin should we assume that a dying infant is saved because uh based on not being able to respond to jesus I mean you hear that sometimes presented as well that Well, God's not gonna judge them because they didn't have a chance to hear the gospel. They didn't have a chance to respond to Jesus. They didn't have a chance to believe in Jesus. Like, how can God hold them accountable? And I hope you've seen from what we've already talked about from scripture today that that we're not held accountable strictly based on what we do with the gospel because some people are never given the gospel. Some people die condemned because of their rejection of general revelation. Nowhere in scripture is anyone ever assured at least one opportunity to respond to jesus that assurance is not given in scripture to assume that an infant is guiltless due to a lack of knowledge about jesus would also open us up the uh, open up the door to excuse adults who have not heard of jesus as well right if we use that argument that a child is ushered into heaven because they've never heard about jesus I mean that opens up the door for adults as well there's plenty of adults that will die today who have never heard about jesus in my notes I put, those who have never heard have heard something, and they do have access to key information about God through general revelation. They know that God exists, that there's a moral standard, and they've broken it. And just kind of on a side note, and we're not really talking about people who have never heard the gospel, but sometimes we, we speculate and say, well, what if there is a person out there who wants to be saved and the gospel never reaches them, and they're doing their best they can. How could God really condemn them? I don't think those people exist. And here's why, because there's, there's at least two examples in Scripture of people who were doing the best they could with the knowledge they were given, and God said, it's not good enough, I'm going to send a missionary to you right? Think about Cornelius. Cornelius in the book of Acts, here's a guy who is listed as a God-fearing man who's doing the best that he knows to do with the the knowledge that's been given to him about the Creator. God comes to him in a vision and says, you need to know about Jesus. And it's also a nod and a testimony to the fact that God communicates the gospel through people and not through visions and not through angels, because he says, go find Peter, go find Peter, Send for Peter so that Peter can tell you what you're missing so that you can get right with God, so that you can worship Jesus. I think when that happens, when, when the Holy Spirit is working upon somebody, God finishes the deal. He sends somebody to complete the process. So somebody recognizes general revelation, somebody doesn't want to reject general revelation, they're under conviction, and God brings the missionary. God brings the missionary. Paul also shows up to these people who are, who are so confused about deities, says they even have an altar to an unknown God. But Paul doesn't say, hey, you guys don't really need to do anything here. You were you doing the best that you can with the general revelation provided for you. Chalk one up here, man, this is great. Like, I guess people can be saved without a missionary. No, Paul says, this isn't good enough, right? I have been sent here to fill in the gaps so that you can be saved. If people can be saved without Jesus... If infants can be saved without Jesus, man, pull the missionaries off the mission field. Man, let them come home and enjoy time with their family and friends. Don't send them. Don't send them. If there's other ways to be saved without hearing the gospel from a human being, man, pull them back and let, leave it up to God to get the gospel to them. Man, all through Scripture, it's all about God using human beings to communicate the gospel to other human beings and always finding the right human beings to get the gospel to and if he's sovereign and in control, he knows every single human heart out there and knows where these missionaries need to be finding their way to, right? It doesn't work for me to say that, that a dying infant is saved because they are not able to respond to Jesus. Probably the most uh, well-known and used argument is David's comments when he loses his son. You remember that David and Bathsheba had sinned against God and uh, God had given them a child in the midst of that sin but God takes that child from him. In 2nd Samuel chapter 12. I think the first two arguments don't even work. Like they're, they're not even good. The third one I think is a valid comment to make. In 2nd Samuel chapter 12 verse 15 The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. There's some theologians that speculate that the wordage there simply means that he can't bring his son back from the dead, that he can only go to the dead, that it's not necessarily an assurance that he gets to go and be with his son. It's just simply talking about, the here and now versus the afterlife, and, and his child is passed into the afterlife, and there's nothing he can do, that he, he can't even be with his son until he goes to the afterlife as well, that there's not necessarily assurance to be given to a Christian parent that they will be with their child again, um, which may or may not be true. I can tell you that I feel very similar to David here, um, that in the two weeks that we knew something wasn't right, um, there was a lot of internal grieving over the past two weeks for me kind of reconciling because I think I knew at the first ultrasound that this is what the case was. Um, Lauren and I are too good with keeping track of dates and and knowing where she should be, uh, for there to really been a mistake there. Um, and so I was pretty sure at the first ultrasound that that this was not going to, to end up the way that we wanted it to end up, that it wasn't going to go according to our will. Um, we still wanted A.J. to tell people. We were still okay with A.J. telling people because I knew that if we were going to walk through this, that I wanted to be able to walk through it with as many people as possible. And so we didn't shy away, really, um, from telling people. Um, but I can tell you the last two weeks were maybe harder than even the last couple of days. Not knowing and really just praying for a miracle and praying that, that God would, would do things differently than I believed he was starting to do them and that, that God would save our child, that, that there would be good growth and development. Um, and there wasn't, and we found that out this week. And I can tell you that immediately. Again, my first thoughts were, "My kids with Jesus," um, and then that I don't have to. I don't have to um, labor like I have been over the last two weeks, wondering and, and praying and hoping. Uh, I, I know now. I, I know what we're dealing with now. I know where my child is. He's not there anymore. He's not in my my uh, my wife's womb anymore. Um, so I, I feel like I echo kind of the sentiments here of what David's talking about. Um, I, I thought, also think it's interesting that later on in life, when David loses Absalom, a guy who, who is really rebellious, uh, that you really wouldn't look at his life and think there's any hope of his, of his salvation, David grieves over the loss of his son after his death and continues to grieve, right? He stops grieving at the death of his son here, he grieves for his son after his death later on in life, um, probably because there's a different there's a different understanding as to where that child is and where this child is. Um, in, in my notes though, I put, while David did cease in his grieving for his son, seemingly finding a level of comfort in his death, I need more conclusive, biblically rooted reasons for believing my child is with jesus i don't want I don't want my theology about where my child is to be strictly rooted in a Old Testament narrative that we're going off of something that David says that he believes. I want to see something more conclusive from Scripture. Um, and so, so I want to take you to a couple of points why I believe that my child and everybody else's child in here that has gone through this is with Jesus. Um, I want us to go back to Romans chapter one. And I'm leaving the door open in the idea of why I believe in versus why I know because I don't think scripture is as crystal clear on this as I would appreciate it being. Um, And I'm sure God has all kinds of reasons for that. Um, But based on my knowledge of the workings of the gospel and how salvation is presented to us in scripture, I believe that my child is with Jesus. Because in Romans chapter one, verse 20, and again, I I told you I came to this conclusion years back prior to this week. Um, So this is certainly not, again, me looking at Scripture in a new and a fresh way based on what I'm going through. This is something I came across years ago um, when I was wrestling through this issue simply from a, let's just talk about this and try to answer this speculative question, right? Like, I came to this conclusion prior to going through it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. To me, the, the, the strongest biblical argument for believing that that children and even those who who are born without the mental capacity to really grasp the gospel, to even grasp God's divine nature and eternal power in in creation is that an infant would not be free from excuse paul's argument in romans 1 2 and 3 is meant to as he says in romans 3 to shut every mouth before god that that mankind will stand before god and have no excuse for why they should be free from condemnation no excuse And he builds that argument by showing that there is is general revelation that points people to to God and his divinity. And we've seen missionaries come in and fill in the gaps when needed, that there's a law written upon the hearts of every individual, so even if they don't have the divine, specially issued law by God with all the intricate details, there's enough moral uh, compass given to every single individual to know the difference between right and wrong enough there where we choose to do wrong, even if we don't know God's uh, detailed law. That every single human being is brought under the condemnation of God without excuse and mouths are stopped. And I think what we see here is that, first of all, the Bible shows conscious guilt through one's exposure to and rejection of divine revelation, whether that's general or special. Okay, God has divinely revealed himself generally and specially so generally through creation specially through the prophets through the writings through Jesus the bible shows conscious guilt through one's exposure to and rejection of divine revelation the bible also goes on to show conscious guilt through one's willful disobedience to known right romans chapter 2 verse 14 For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 1 presents a state of not knowing right and wrong, Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 39. And as for you, little ones, who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. This is in reference to Israel's rebellion against God and them being afraid for their children to die in the promised land. And so they don't want to go into the promised land. They want to go back to Egypt. God says, okay, y'all aren't going in. And the very kids that, that you were worried about becoming prey They're the ones that are going to go in, your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil. They're going to go into the promised land, all right? Um, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, talking about the ability to choose between evil and choose between good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the aspect of us appearing before God to be judged for the things that we do. James four seventeen, another passage that talks about us being accountable for the choices that we've made. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Again, that concept of knowing right from wrong. And then in Revelation chapter 20, a passage that we'll get to very soon, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In my notes I put, The imputation of Adam's sin and guilt explains our inability to respond to God without regeneration. Okay? Okay? The the, the imputation of Adam's sin prohibits us from being good people. It prohibits us from responding to the gospel unless the Holy Spirit does a supernatural work in us. But according to these passages, I think the Bible is not teaching that we're held accountable for Adam's sin, but that we answer for our own sins. Now, I want to be careful there, because what I'm not suggesting here is that Adam's sin doesn't make us guilty or sinful, right? Because we dismiss the idea. Children aren't innocent. They're conceived in sin. But when we look to the end time and us standing before God and being judged, all these passages highlight us being judged for our willful, conscious decisions, the things that we did. An infant is incapable of comprehending general revelation or choosing to do wrong. That's just the state that they're in. When God takes them home, they 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 haven't comprehended general revelation, right? God took my child home six weeks ago. And, and my child didn't know about general revelation yet. My child didn't have a, a, a mental capacity to, to wrap their minds around God's eternal power and divine nature. Didn't obviously even have the, cho- the choice to do wrong. Now here's where I wanna leave the door open that I may be wrong on this. While God would be completely justified in punishing my child for original sin only. Okay, I, I'm admitting Adam's sin warrants condemnation enough that if God chooses to condemn my child for original sin, he would be completely justified in it. But it seems the aspect of vindication would be absent. What do I mean by that? God would know why my infant was in hell, but my infant would not. Think about that for a second. All this stuff in Romans builds up to this idea that your mouth is shut because you know you rejected general revelation. You know the difference between right and wrong and you have chose to do wrong. You're, you're guilty. You're condemned before God. Whether you had a lot of revelation or a little bit of revelation, you rejected the revelation given to you and your mouth is shut. Your mouth is stopped. You're guilty before God. And while I'll admit, I think Adam's sin is so condemning that if I find out later that I'm wrong on this, I'm not going to throw my finger up at God and say, man, you're just completely unjust. I'm going to say, you know what, your your purposes and your ways are greater than my ways because sin is awful, and death entered this world through one man's sin. But I think the the supporting aspect to this is, man, while God would know why my infant was there, my infant wouldn't know. My infant might be standing there saying, I don't know why I'm here, (laughs) I don't, I don't understand. Like, like I, wasn't, I wasn't even. I wasn't given an opportunity to recognize the general. Again, notice I'm not saying I wasn't given a chance to respond to Jesus. My infant was never promised that in scripture. But Paul says, I have, God has revealed himself through revelation. You are without excuse. And I've been encouraged through the readings of John Piper, Al Mohler, Denny Burke, a bunch of other guys related to the Gospel Coalition who all come back to this point The idea of being without excuse, that an infant, a child, someone with a mental capacity to not be able to understand things, someone who was born in such a way where they can't grow and develop, seems like they would have an excuse. I I didn't have a way to know the things that were revealed through creation. A quote by John Piper here. The point for us is that even though we human beings are under the penalty of everlasting judgment and death because of the fall of our race into sin and the sinful nature that we all have nevertheless God only executes this judgment on those who have the natural capacity to see his glory and understand his w- and refuse to embrace it as their treasure. Infants I believe do not yet have that capacity. And therefore in God's inscrutable way he brings them under the forgiving blood of his son and that's the, that's, the, that's the most important part to probably close with, is that I believe my child is in heaven, not because they're innocent, not because they weren't born with a sin nature or would have been born with a sin. They were conceived with a sin nature. I believe they're in heaven because they were not given an opportunity to respond to the, even the general revelation of God, and that by being in heaven, they are there because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They're not there because they're innocent. They're not there because they're without sin. They're there because Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, excuses them, excuses them based on that lack of of ability to have knowledge to respond to or to reject, really to reject. My infant didn't have an opportunity to reject that knowledge. I tried to combine some some things that I was reading from some authors with with kind of a final statement here. We can trust the character of God, the one who loves us so much that he came and gave himself for us. We can be confident that his judgments are always right, his nature is always good, his mercy is always wide, and his desire for people to be saved is greater still than ours. I affirm the salvation of dying infants, though, neither because they are innocent nor because they have merited forgiveness, but solely because God has sovereignly chosen them for eternal life, regenerated their souls, and applied the saving benefits of the blood of Christ to them apart from their ability to have conscious faith. I know I run the risk of being confusing and in, in trying to share some of this stuff because I wholeheartedly believe the gospel is salvation through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But I also believe that the inner workings of the gospel and how that plays itself out allows, allows for this belief here where, where scripture isn't completely clear about this. That if I'm reading these passages correctly, there is hope. And, and, and I can read David's account and say, okay, here's why David can have hope. Here's why David can have hope about seeing his child again based on the inner workings of the gospel that are more clearly revealed here in the New Testament through Paul's writings. Um, Again, I'm putting belief here because I know that there's still the possibility of me being wrong and me not fully understanding this. I welcome you to dialogue with me about it. You're not gonna, you don't have to worry about being sensitive to my situation right now. As your pastor, if you wanna talk about this more, feel free to do so. Like, I'm fine with talking about this. Again, I told you, I reached these conclusions before, before this week. Um, I reached this conclusion before this week. So I would, I would have preached this message at any point if God was leading me to preach this message, not in response strictly to what my family is going through. I felt like today it would be a missed opportunity to not share why I have great hope in the midst of loss. And it's based on my understanding of the gospel, a holy and just creator who has made salvation possible through his son, Jesus Christ. Because without Christ, my infant's not in heaven They they wouldn't be in heaven because they were innocent. They wouldn't be in heaven because they weren't guilty. They're only in heaven because Jesus did come and lived a perfect life, and died a sacrificial death, and rose again. And what great hope to know that my child will come with Jesus. My child will come with Jesus at his second coming, and there will be a great reunion, I believe, um, in the midst of us glorying around Jesus. And I offer and extend that same hope to those who have experienced a similar loss from an application standpoint we must share the gospel early and often understanding that Jesus is the only way to salvation man i hope as a as a kids teacher this morning that you would feel the the uh the, the great burden and value to what you do because i believe that this doesn't extend long this does not extend long this idea that well well i don't i don't i don't i don't have the mental capacity to understand general revelation, to be held accountable to God for my actions. And I don't think this extends long. We can, we can see willful, conscious decision to rebel early, early, which makes what we're doing, even in that nursery class with Adam and Klaus teaching, so important. So even though you may not be participating in that teaching in the nursery, those of you that keep the other kids that, that are considered infant and baby stage and can't understand that, that, that teaching... Man, you are keeping the distractions away from our little ones who need to hear the gospel now. They need to hear the gospel now because they don't get to wait until they hear about Jesus to then be accountable. Man, when they start recognizing general revelation and God and his divine nature and his eternal power and their ability to choose right and wrong, man, I, don't, I, don't think, they're, I, I think they're now without excuse. I think they're without excuse I think Paul's very clear about that, and that comes early, I think, in the life of a child. I mean, that ought to encourage us as parents to get the gospel out early and often to our kids in as many ways as we possibly can to make it clear to them what Jesus does for them. I mean, that translates even more to our kids' class that's going on in the next room. What a a great, great opportunity you have as as a kids' worker in our church to present the gospel early and often to people who desperately need it. Family worship questions this week, I encourage you to continue this conversation with your children. What is the gospel and what does it mean to express repentance and faith? I know just in talking with other, other dads that there are kids who are asking questions. There are kids who, who are certainly on the verge of understanding and making a willful decision to either accept or reject the gospel. I would encourage you to continue in those efforts in presenting the gospel to our children so they can express that con- conscious decision to follow Jesus. God, I thank you for your sustaining grace in the midst of loss this week for our family. I thank you for um, just a deep and clear understanding of the gospel that I believe you've given to me well in advance of walking through this uh, trial with my family this week. Lord, I do praise you and thank you for being a creator who is holy and just, that has demonstrated his character by making a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for bringing me to a a knowledge early in life at the age of five that I was a guilty sinner in need of a Savior, that my good works were, were far short of what you were demanding. God, I thank you for making me aware of your eternal power and your divine nature through general revelation and allowing me to see the choices that I was making and and how I wasn't capable of making the right choice every time. God, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving so many in this room. Lord, I pray that this church would continue to be a beacon of hope in this community. I pray that as our families continue to have children and our children continue to grow up in this church, that they would be exposed to the gospel early and often. Because God, my belief here is that you're covering... Individuals with your grace and your mercy and your blood, who are incapable of understanding some of the things that you lay out in Scripture as being uh, proof of guilt, but God, I don't think that lasts very long. Got to know that it's it's very quickly that we are without excuse for being a created being of yours that fails to give you glory and honor, Father. I pray that any confusion that I may have conveyed this morning in trying to share something that's not very clear in Scripture, but something that I think is is worth considering and something that is certainly um, needed in the midst of loss. Father, I pray that any clarity that needs to be made um, would be done. Um, Father, I don't want anybody to leave confused today. Um, I certainly don't believe that there is any other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. And Father, I believe that those infants that you call home early are certainly bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and their sin is forgiven through an act of grace by you. Father, I thank you for other men who have done such intricate studies of this to to even be able to learn from through my own studies over the past years. I thank you for their willingness to, to dig deep into Scripture about a difficult topic and to be able to pass that wisdom along. Lord, I pray for those that have experienced this type of loss, those that will continue to experience this type of loss into the future. That we would be comforted by your sovereignty and your goodness. That we would be reminded constantly that you're in control of all things. And that you work good in all things for those that love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.